Thank you, Sean, for leading us. I can't think of a better way to prepare to hear from God's Word than going through uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm about to do something that pastors um, shouldn't do. And the elders are probably really scared right now. I'm going to cause division in the church body. All right? Um, Because there's two people, there's two sets of people in the room. Some people who are going to, and this has nothing to do with, like, the Rams or the Bengals. Okay? Um, Some of you are like, what is that? There's a football game next weekend called the Super Bowl, in case you didn't know. Some people are like, why are animals fighting each other? Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to put a a picture up on the screen. Not yet. I'm going to put a picture on the screen, and immediately um, it's going to create two groups of people. Some of you who think you see one thing, and some of you who think you see a completely different thing. All right? Um, And some of you are going to be like, "I I am positive that I am right about this. And some of you are like, you are wrong. I'm right. Are you ready? Here it is. Here's the picture. Anybody remember that? Some of you do, some of you don't. This was a long time ago. You remember the dress? Some of you don't. Wow. This was long enough ago to where you don't remember the dress. This was like back in 2015. Okay? This went viral. Like broke the internet. Some people, they look at this picture, and they see that that dress is white and gold. Does anybody see white and gold? Yeah, there's a few people in the room who see white and gold. Does anybody see black and blue? Black black and blue, amen, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, um, go to the next picture. So does that look like two different dresses? That's the same dress, like the, the exact same dress. So there was a lot of people back in 2015 who um, thought they saw, the, they saw this picture on the right, and they immediately saw in their mind, they saw that it was white and gold. And all, all somebody did, this mom posted this picture for this, this wedding rehearsal and was like, um, look at this dress. What color do you think it is? And it just went crazy. And it, some people, went as, they exaggerated and said, this went as far as dividing the planet because half the planet saw that it was white and gold and half the planet saw that it was black and blue. In reality, the dress is black and blue. But it caused a lot of conflict within the family. Like, families were divided. There was strife. Like, there was angst. Like, we needed any more angst in our families, right, just because of this. Um, and so... You can see that, like, your eyes can play tricks on you, right? A lot of people, actually the majority of people, scientists said, they saw the dress as white and gold first. And, and it has something to do with the lighting and the shadows and, and how your brain perceives color, right? And, and, and some type of, of contrast there. Um, the sermon is not about a dress tonight, okay? So just at ease. But... Our passage tonight is in Genesis 13, and this chapter is full of contrast. All right, we're going to see conflict in this chapter, we're going to see strife, but mainly we're going to see contrast. So it's a chapter of contrast, 
And if you remember from last week, Genesis 12, we find Abram responding to God's word in faith and trusting God's promise. And so you're going to see a map up on the screen um, of Abram's migration from Ur to Haran to Bethel. And so from Ur to, to Haran is about 700 miles. And then from Haran to Bethel is about another 700 miles. So this is about a 1,400-mile journey, no small step of faith that he took. Right? And if you have an ESV study Bible, this map is actually in your study notes. Um, but I'll provide this stuff in the um, further Genesis resources. Um, but in the latter part of the chapter, in, verse, in chapter 12, we, we see that he acts in a, Abraham, Abram acts in a self-preserving manner. Right? He, he makes some poor choices. He, he kind of distrusts God's promise. Um, and you contrast that tonight with chapter 13, where we find Abram acting selflessly, generously, and trusting God's promise. And so if you take notes, chapter 13 is broken down beautifully. If you're type A, you're going to love this chapter, right? It's, it's got three parts. In the first seven verses, um, Abram and Lot are both wealthy, but wealth leads to strife. In part two, verses eight through 13, Abram gives Lot first dibs to avoid conflict in the family, and he rests in God's promise, and he doesn't get greedy. And then the latter part, verses 14 through 18, uh, the Lord reaffirms the covenant promise to Abram. All right, and so that's how this chapter is broken down. And we're going to work through each of those parts tonight. But before we do, let's pray and ask for the Lord to speak to us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to gather in this place. Lord, I know that a lot of people walked in this room tonight, and, and some of them are excited because they've been reading through and following closely in this study through Genesis, and, and some are not. I know that, that heavy hearts walked in the room tonight. I know that there are hearts in here tonight who are hiding things from people. There are marriages in the room that are on the rocks. There are, there are people who are struggling with depression, anxiety, and there are people who are trying to put on a good face. Maybe their, their heart's full of bitterness. Maybe their heart's full of fear. There's a lot of different things going on in the room tonight in our hearts. But God, there's nothing that I can say, nothing that I can do to transform any hearts tonight. But only your word can. So I pray that right now, as we read your word, as we study your word, that your spirit would bring dead hearts to life. That if there was anybody in the room walking in tonight who was walking in the flesh, I pray that they would walk out in faith and in the power of your spirit. We praise you for your word and for this time that we have together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, starting in verse 1, chapter 13, says this. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So this is a continuation of the narrative from chapter 12. And when they got kicked out of Egypt due to Abram's temporary lack of faith and foolish decision making. If you'll remember from last week, Brody was preaching chapter 12. He said that Abram temporarily focused on his circumstances and not Yahweh. He freaked out and he took matters into his own hands and he didn't trust the Lord. Yet God had mercy on him and he actually got to walk out of Egypt, and Pharaoh blessed him. Even though he lied, 
right? Even though he kind of pawned his wife off, like he got to walk out of Egypt with wealth, more than he walked in with. And so this is kind of foreshadowing of Israel's exodus from Egypt with plunder, right? God knew that Israel was going to be unfaithful, distrusting people, but he used Moses to deliver them out of bondage from Egypt, and the Egyptians gave them great wealth as they left. And so this is many years prior to that, but Abram having distrusted God's promise and made a foolish decision, yet he walks out of Egypt with his wife and great wealth in Hall. If you continue on in verse 3, you'll see where he went. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram went back to his first love back to the beginning where he'd laid down his life and walked in faith for the first time. This is a picture of repentance and of rededication. He went back to the place where he'd made an altar at the first, back to the heart of worship where it was all about God, which is a huge contrast from his culture where he came from, right? Where, where the worship was not about God. It wasn't God-focused, but we, right here we see that he's, it's God's faithfulness, it's God's promise, it's God's covenant love that, that he's turning, returning to and going back. There at Bethel, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And this is repeated from Genesis 12, 8. The emphasis here is on his faith in God and his worship. The Lord appeared to Abram in Genesis 12, 7 and promised the Canaanite's land would be his. Now, Abram is remembering God's covenant promise, and so he's worshiping the Lord. Abram coming out of Egypt with his wife and wealth to worship the Lord is foreshadowing, right? In Acts 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, preaches to the Jews and reminds them of God's promise and purpose in Abram's life. This is Acts 7, a few verses. Stephen's preaching, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So God delivered Abraham out of Egypt so that he'd worship him. Just like God delivered Israel out of Egypt so that they would worship him. So that they would call upon the name of the Lord. And God delivers you and me out of bondage of sin and out of our, our darkness and, and out of the slavery of sin so that we would worship the Lord, so that we would call upon the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord means to invoke his proper name, to approach God in thanksgiving, praise, petition, and to proclaim that he alone is God, that there is no other. There's no one beside him. There's no one above him. There is no one like him. It's a reminder for us that Abram knew God personally. He called on his name. This is a relationship that is close. Sometimes Abram doesn't trust the Lord and his promises, and sometimes he does. Don't we do that too in our relationships? Oftentimes, sometimes we trust, sometimes we don't, but mostly in our relationship with God, sometimes we trust him, sometimes we don't. 
Sometimes don't we think that our plans are better than his? Now, we, might, we, not, we don't vocalize that, right? We don't say, I know better than God. My plan's better than God's plan. But in reality, we act like that's true. I know I've done that. Like, I've made decisions about what's going on in my life and, and, and decisions that I've, I've, I knew I should make that are large decisions or small decisions where I didn't take them to the Lord first. I didn't, I didn't go to him first and lay them before his feet and ask what he wanted. I acted like I knew better. Like I, I was in control and I trusted myself and my understanding more than the Lord's. But then we have times where God reminds us that he's faithful, that he gets us out of the mess we put ourselves in, right? And it helps us to return to trusting in him again. Here in this passage, we see that Abram went back to the beginning. Maybe you need to go back to the beginning. Maybe you need to go back to the first time where you laid your life down on the altar and when you cried out to Jesus for the very first time. Maybe you need to go back to where you called on the name of the Lord. You know, this week I've, I've dwelled a lot on the question that Brody asked last week. He said, where would you be without the gospel? Where would you be without the gospel? And in, in thinking about that question, with that question in my mind, as I was studying through this chapter, I was reminded about how God rescued me. I was reminded about where I was and when it happened, when he opened my eyes for the very first time, and when I read his word, and it, and it came to life, when I actually understood what, it, what I was reading, when he enlightened my heart and my eyes. Or do you remember that time? Do you remember the time? Like, go back. Try right now, even, to go back to that time when you were reading your Bible, and he illuminated it for you. Because apart from him, we can't understand it. This week I went back and I read again that passage that the Lord used to open my eyes and, and to bring me out of darkness. When he exposed me of all my sin and when he showed me, you are dead in your sin. You've been disobedient. You've lived according to the ways of this world. You've followed the passions of your flesh. You've listened to what other people have told you, what will satisfy you. You've lived your life as if you know what's best for you. And you've seen how that leads to nothing but death. And then he showed me the gospel. But God, even, even though you lived your life like that, Joseph, but God, he's rich in mercy. He's, he loves you. He's full of grace. He saves you because of his grace, not because of anything you've done. And he took me back. He took me back to the beginning, back to my first love. Back when I, I remember there was a massive contrast between the old me and the new me. There was a huge difference. So much so that in high school, y'all remember like yearbooks? And they would like sign, I don't know if they do those anymore. They sign people's yearbooks in print. I don't know if they're digital anymore or if they still do that. But when I graduated from high school, I had a yearbook, and people would sign, write things in the back of it, you know? And then if you look at my junior high yearbook and then my senior high yearbook, they're completely different. You'd be like, these are completely different people. What happened? 
And people would be like, I don't know what happened to you, Tucker, but you changed. You're different. It's just Jesus. It was just Jesus. So I'd encourage you this week, go back. Go back to the beginning. Remember all that God has done for you. Remember where you were, where your life was, where it could be. Reflect on and praise the Lord that you're not there anymore, that you're not where you could be, and worship him because of it. Worship him because he's worthy. Worship him because you aren't there anymore. It's important for us to remember, not only to reflect on what Abram did, that he went back to the beginning and that he called upon the name of the Lord, but it's important for us to remember that Abram wasn't alone when this was happening. He wasn't by himself, right? Look, if, if you'll see other people, they were watching him. Abram was with, with his family. And they were watching how he would respond to God and how he would respond to God's blessing. Look at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Lot was the son of Haran, which was Abram's brother. So after Haran died, Abram took responsibility of his nephew Lot. Now, we will provide Abram's family tree. I don't know if you're going to see it up there or not. It was kind of blurry. But we'll provide it um, in the further resources. It's pretty helpful as you're reading through narratives like this to like know who is who and, and where they came from and how they're kind of related. Um, because, let me give you a perfect example every day. If my brother and his wife happened to pass away, they have three kids, their three children would then be mine and Allie's responsibility. So we would adopt them into our home and we would care for them, all of our nephews and nieces, right? And, and if that's true of us in 2022, how much more was it true back then? Because we see here that Lot benefited from his uncle's prosperity and blessing. That Lot, he wasn't a little boy in this passage, all right? Lot's a wealthy, grown adult man. And we can see here how wealth can lead to strife within the family. Uh, in Calvin's commentary, he said, Whenever rich men fall into trouble because of their wealth, they should learn to use the pain it gives them as medicine to purge their minds of too great a desire for the good things of this present life. Unless God in his wisdom tightens the curb wisely, men would lead, leave the right road and stumble badly in their pursuit of prosperity. I don't know about you, but I've seen how family can be divided over money, right, and, and wealth, it seem, it, people seem to be nice and get along and then someone dies and the will isn't very clear and then all of a sudden there's conflict in the family when there wasn't conflict before. Wealth is never worth the division in relationships. And some of you might be thinking, I'd rather be rich than to deal with the craziness in my family. But here's a word to the rich and the poor. Let those who have abundance remember that they are surrounded with thorns and let them take great care not to be pricked by them. And let those who have little and are very much hemmed in know that God planned their poverty to keep them from evil and hurtful snares. That's from Calvin's commentary as well. So in part one, we see how wealth can lead to strife. 
And in part two, we're going to see a family split up. Right? Abram knew it wasn't good to have strife, period, much less to have it between family members. And so let's look at his proposal in verse 3. Genesis 13, uh, verse 8, sorry. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you go to the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. So here in part two of our text, we see Abram gives Lot first dibs to avoid conflict. He says, hey man, let's not fight over the land because we're family. Great question. Is not the whole land before you? It's it's all here for your choosing. This statement by Abram is is very kind and generous because he was the leader of the family. If anybody should have first choice, it was Abram, not anybody else. So here we have a man who's open-handed and big-hearted. What a contrast to the Abram of chapter 12. Abram gives Lot first choice, and so they split up. Generous actions flow from the lives of those who are walking by faith. Abram's generous action reveals a person whose eye was on the Lord. But if you look at verse 10, you see that Lot's eyes were not focused on the Lord. Look at verse 10 with me. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. That tells us that Lot was walking by sight. And that stands in stark contrast to Abram, who was walking by faith and trusting in God's promise. Lot chose the rich and lush valley where the Jordan River was. This was a pretty selfish choice that put him near the wicked city of Sodom. So it says, thus they separated from each other. This was not best for Lot, right? And it probably hurt the heart of his uncle pretty good. There's a lesson for us here. Living by sight leads towards deception and ultimately destruction. So let's not lose sight of the contrast that Moses is giving for us and giving for the Israelites. Think about this. The Israelites were the first recipients of this text. And when they're hearing this for the first time, they're, they're, they're in their minds. They're, they see Lot. They see Abram. They see Lot is a, is a man who's walking by sight where he seems selfish and self-seeking and self-gratifying. And they know that it doesn't end well for him. And then they see Abram, who's walking by faith. He's generous. He's not selfish. He's, he's honorable. He's righteous. And that ended in blessing. So this would have been very instructive for Israel when they heard it. It's still instructive for us today. In Calvin's commentary, he says, Therefore, seeing that he was led away solely by the pleasantness of the prospect, he pays the penalty of his foolish cupidity, which is greed. Let us then learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted but that we must rather be on guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled, unaware, with many evils, just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. So last week, Brody's main point of application from Genesis 12 was we are a people who live by faith. Tonight, we see the contrast, the, the choice of either walking by sight or walking by faith. The Bible often uses the words um, to walk or to live interchangeably. So walking by faith 
is the same thing as living by faith. If you, if, when the Bible says walk in the Spirit, it says live in the Spirit. To live by faith is to walk by faith. So let's look at where Abram and Lot end up in verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So fulfilling God's word of pr- promise provision, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. The land of promise and a blessing, vitality and goodness. You contrast that with the land of Sodom, which is described as wicked against the Lord. This description of the men of the city of Sodom is a grave one. The word wicked in verse 13 means evil or corrupt. It's actually the same word that, is, that God uses in Genesis 6-5 when he said the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth. And in Genesis 8-21, when the Lord said, In his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil or wicked from his youth. So sin is always an affront against a holy God and deserves judgment. In his commentary, Kent Hughes says, Though Lot was offered a share in the land of Canaan, he rejected it and moved to its very edge. His journey east was a dark echo of the way Cain had departed. The wickedness of the Sodomites suggests that they were living at a level lower than normal sinners, just as chapter 19 will grotesquely bear this out. When we choose to live by sight alone, we sin. For Lot, this was the beginning of his backsliding. As the text says, he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Like the old adage says, if you mess with the bull, you get the horns. Right? I think probably a better one, more fitting for Lot, would be if you play with fire, you'll get burned. Lot's choice would lead him closer and closer to more wickedness. Yet later we know that he ended up actually living in Sodom. Walking by sight alone is a slippery slope. Which brings us to part three of our passage where the Lord reaffirms the covenant with Abram. Part one, we see how wealth can lead to strife. Part two, the family split, but Abram avoids conflict by being generous to Lot. And now in part three, starting in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mambre and where, which are at Hebron and there he built an altar to the Lord. So in verse 14, God said, lift up your eyes, Abram, and look. This is contrasted with verse 10, where Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. We are to look at what God tells us to look at. Faith rests its gaze on God and his faithful promises. God speaks to Abram and makes sure that Abram knows and understands that God is the decisive actor in this covenant. Listen to the emphasis that God puts on this covenant. He says, I will give to you. I will make your offspring innumerable. I will give to you. What was Abram's role in this? But to lift up his eyes, to set his gaze on what God said to look at, and to walk it out. Look at verse 17. It says, walk the land. So what did this lifting up, this looking and walking lead to? Abraham's only response could be worship. He moved his tent and built an altar to the Lord. It's not only encouragement to you to go back to the beginning. I'd encourage you to lift up your eyes this week, maybe even tonight, and look. 
look and remember what the Lord has done for you. Maybe this simple practice would lead you to worship the Lord more faithfully this week. Abram's faith and worship of the Lord bookends this chapter beautifully. If you look at verse 4 and verse 18, he does the exact same thing. He worships and calls on the name of the Lord at the altar. In his commentary, Alan Ross says, Abram therefore had the freedom to act generously, righteously, and mercifully in his resolving the dispute. Those who believe the promise of God's provision may be generous with their possessions, but those who are greedy, anxious, or covetous have not understood the nature of God's covenant. Those who walk by faith rest their gaze on God and his faithful promises. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. If you live for instant gratification, you will never truly be satisfied. And Lot learned the lesson the hard way. Walking by sight leads to building your life around things that have no eternal significance. Walking by sight means living life with the here and now perspective where you're only focused on the temporary. You contrast that with walking by faith, which is the main point tonight. If you walk by faith and worship him faithfully, That means that you're going to be living with an eternal perspective, future-focused, eyes up for God's glory and not your own. To walk by faith is to fear God, not men. To obey God's word, to trust God, to be generous and selfish and honorable, regardless of what others say about you or to you. But how can you know if you're walking by faith? How do you know if you're walking by faith? How do you know if you're walking by sight? The key is your eyes. What are your eyes looking at? What are you letting in your eyes? What are you focusing on in your life? Are you looking at the things the world tells you to look at? Are you focusing on those things? Or are you gazing at the Lord and looking at his word and seeking to live trusting him and his promises? You know you're walking by faith if you're keeping your eyes on Jesus, making the glory of God your goal, the word of God your rule, the spirit of God your guide. You know, this month is February, and every time it's February, I I think about student ministry because it's the time of the year where a lot of student ministries across the nation have their D-Now weekend, which is a discipleship retreat weekend. And, uh, we used to do that back at Center Grove, and um, in February of 2017, one of our students, Marshall Baker, was a senior in high school, and he attended D-Now, and he served with us, and, and he played with us, and um, he was super faithful. Him and his family were super faithful. He was a healthy and strong young man. He enjoyed the outdoors. He loved uh, hunting and fishing and just being outside with his sister and his uh, mom and dad. Uh, no one in the world would have expected that eight months later we'd be at his funeral. He was healthy in February, and then that same year we're having his funeral. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor a few months after Dinao. He battled for months and suffered greatly. He had multiple surgeries, went through every kind of treatment you can imagine, but nothing would and no one could eradicate the cancer. Marshall was a strong young man in the faith, even before he had cancer. He didn't rely on his own body to defeat the cancer. 
He didn't rely on his parents to defeat the cancer. He didn't rely on the doctors to defeat the cancer. He didn't rely on the medicine to defeat the cancer because he knew and he understood that he could only rely on the Lord alone. He was 17 years old when the cancer destroyed his optic nerve in his brain. And he was blind for the last three months of his life. I'll never forget going to, to visit him in the hospital week after week and just watching his body deteriorate and him turn into basically a skeleton with skin on. And even when he couldn't see, one of his most favorite things to do was if you would read the word of God to him. It was the only time he would perk up. And I'll never forget when he said, don't lose your focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. How could he, like when I asked him, what would you want the students in student ministry to know, Marshall? You're a senior, you're a leader. Like, what could I tell them for you? Because you can't come to church anymore. Don't lose focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. How in the world could this 17-year-old young man who can't see say, don't lose your focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He couldn't see. Marshall knew that it wasn't about just physical sight. That, that physical sight was temporary. That, that he focused on the, the eyes of his heart. He knew that it was most important where his heart affections lied. And he truly did walk by faith. He fixed his eyes on Jesus. His identity, his hope was in Christ alone. Nothing else. No one else in this world. You remember what Paul said? Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because he who hopes for what he, who hopes for what he sees. Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Mar- Marshall knew that things that we see are temporary, but things that are not seen are eternal. And his identity was rooted in Christ, not what people thought about him. He loved his church. He hated to miss gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ. He was the most vivid example of walking by faith and not by sight. He didn't take his eyes off of his Savior. The ultimate divide, the ultimate contrast comes down to those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those in Adam have their eyes set on what they see and they walk in the flesh, while those in Christ have their eyes set on Jesus and they walk in the Spirit and walk by faith. Kent Hughes says this, fellow believers, Abram's spiritual seed, when we truly believe the promises that are ours in Christ, when we truly understand and believe that we are seated right now in him, in the heavenly places, when we understand that all things are ours in Christ, we will cease our grasping. What he's saying is that we'll stop looking for things in the world to satisfy us. We'll stop reaching out and, and grabbing and trying to pull in and to satisfy our own appetites. And we'll start trusting that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus and that we're satisfied in Christ alone. Those in Christ should be the most content and joyful people in the world because their focus is not on things that are seen, but on what is unseen. They're walking by faith. Walking by faith in Christ makes all the difference in the world now and for eternity. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. 
walk in trust. The wise learn to trust the Lord. The wise learn to walk by faith and not by sight. So let those who have ears to hear and eyes to see walk by faith. Trust in the Lord. Eyes up. Focused on what we already have been given. Worshiping him all the way home. You know, maybe you came in here tonight and you are walking by faith. You're worshiping the Lord with your life and all that he's given you. And praise God for that. Right, that's awesome. Don't lose focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. But maybe, maybe, just maybe some of you walked in here tonight walking by sight. You know you've been making decisions focused on yourself. You've been making decisions like Lot on what's best for you and your family. You've been making selfish decisions. You've been focused on the temporary, on the here and the now. The challenge is to go back to the beginning. Return to the lover of your soul, your first love. As we close, listen to these words from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place until you repent. Return to your first love. Remember what he has done for you. Go back. Listen to the words of Jesus. Don't abandon him. He's the lover of your soul. Repent. Trust in the Lord. Walk by faith, faithfully worshiping him day by day, moment by moment. Let's start tonight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that your word meets us where we are, but in your kindness, you refuse to leave us there. You call us to respond to your word. And I pray that you would find us faithful tonight. For the, surely for those who walked in here tonight who are backsliding, who are living their lives as if they didn't know you, who've maybe neglected your word and, and they've become callous to the conviction of your spirit, I pray that they would return to you, Lord. For those who walked in here tonight and who are walking by faith and, and their eyes are fixed and focused on you and they know who you are and they know that they belong to you. I praise you for them. Father, I thank you that you are building your church. I thank you that you have granted us faith and repentance. I pray that you continue to strengthen your church and to advance your kingdom. All for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.